0: Ladies' prayer time this afternoon, right after this, right? Is that correct? Am I right? Yes, good. That was the most beautiful q and A I I ever heard. Question and answer. He is. That's new Ken Carroll. Today... I'm thinking about what Paul said when he introduced Romans, and we're in the process now of doing an expanded paraphrase of Romans, which I think may be the most important phase of our study in Romans, the epistle. And I may even torture our Mississippi and Ohio group on Wednesday by reading Romans 5 through 8. This Wednesday, we read Romans 1 through 4. They're included in that. There is the introduction, Romans one one to seventeen, and then what I call a dialectic of contradictory gospels between one hundred eighteen and four hundred twenty five. And after a lot of painstaking study and work, I finally put the dialogue together in which you will see in this printed paraphrase we'll have the first four chapters out in print. It's about ten pages. Wednesday. And you'll be able to see where Paul is speaking and where the opponent is speaking, and you'll be able to see the contradiction the irreconcilable contradiction between a gospel in which God is the actor, the sole actor, and any other gospel so that'll be out and then our next phase is what I call all paul romans five one through eight thirty nine Paul he's not talking to anybody except He's talking to the whole world. And then 9 through 11 will be another segment. All of these will be read and, in fact, sort of performed in the church at various times. Romans 9 through 11 having to do with the identity of Israel, the salvation of Israel in the context of a universal redemption. And then 12 through 16 is graced participation in divine life during the clashing of the ages and that will finish Romans and I thought this morning about Paul and he said he served with his spirit and that's very meaningful to me because our human spirit is the very center and heart of our intellect our intentionality and everything that we are and it, I realized that that's exactly what we're doing. We're serving God in our spirit. And I found that my human spirit, and our human spirit is the candle of the Lord, in Proverbs 20 and 27, that my spirit is loath to leave. And unlike the Led Zeppelin song, my spirit isn't wanting to leave this world yet but my spirit is loath to leave romans and i found that of course the holy spirit is also loath to leave romans and i've always intended from the very beginning not to have only an exposition phase which we accomplished last week but also a distillation phase and that's what we did in revelation where we distill some principles and the distillation phase is primarily going to be a widely expanded paraphrase in which the sense is given with the sole intention of yours truly to help your joy, to be a helper of your joy. And that will be forthcoming. And I intended to read five through eight this morning until five 30 this morning. When I awoke and was fully awake, I was woke and A principle came to my mind that I'm going to lead off with today then I went downstairs and wrote almost illegibly thankfully not too illegibly 12 very general principles that I've come up with since Romans but as a bridge to our next increment of doctrine don't don't be afraid our theological increment is going to be the engagement of a lot of scripture And though we won't be anchored down to one book and it's going to be called doing and living theology. Theology is the task not of a few theologians, but of every single believer in Christ. Every single person set apart to belong to Jesus Christ is called to the task of theology by which we enter into an actual grace where God, who always performs the work of salvation, may use you as an ambassador for him to bring that salvation to others. And that's why we're here. So 12 very general principles. And when I say general, you think of an army with a general. Under a general, there are many officers. Under those officers, many non-commissioned officers and then The people like myself, I like to consider myself a grunt in God's army. And so these general principles have an army that fans out at their command. So these are going to be developed. And I like the word fanning out. I'm almost sick of the word unpacking. You get a principle and all these uh, philosophers and Intellects and scientists and theologians always say let me unpack this and they use that as it's kind of a used metaphor. So I like the word fanning out because it's more like what we're doing. It's sort of like you have a flag that's folded in triangular fold perfectly, but you allow it to unfurl. And this theology will unfurl to be a banner over the banqueting table at which we are seated. The banner will be love. It will be God who is love and God who is our refuge. It is his astonishing philanthropy, love for humankind that we celebrate, that we partake in, that we participate in. For he's called us into a community of divine and human persons and even divine and human persons along with an uncountable number of angelic beings who share in the participation in divine life. This is what I mean by, and you'll see what I mean by, doing and living theology. So, this is actually 149th message of Romans. Speaking of officers, I have in mind for some strange reason, you'll have to ask her why, Captain Jasmine Persinger-Weppel, for some reason, she's on my mind today. Ask her if you see her in the hallway. And I do that, really. Ask her, why did Rick have you in his mind today? Could it be? Never mind. Jesus. So, if she's not here, I want to know why. I'm grateful for the prayer. I was thinking when Pastor Brown was praying that when he prays, I'm always studying to be quiet and to be still and to know that God is God. It sets the tone of my thinking, quiets the spirit, tranquilizes my soul a little bit. And then I'm thinking, if we just publish the prayer, we wouldn't have to preach because there's a lot of the principles he mentions are in this the 12 very general principles. And then Vicky, as in her usual way, leading us in a worshipful tone, setting the worshipful tone in which our minds convert to attentiveness upon God, making a melody in our heart to him, which is what our whole lives ought to be, a song. And then Carol's wonderful song intensified our sense of worship And our sense of looking at the only one who is truly worthy. Is there one who is worthy? And yes, he is. Our Lord Jesus Christ. So, 12 very general principles. First one. Justifying grace is sanctifying grace. I'll fan these out a little bit even today. But justifying grace is sanctifying grace. This will address the accusation that the gospel of grace somehow gives a license to sin and that our justification by grace is somehow a license to sin. But justifying grace is sanctifying grace. Still in this general principle, though, these are considered categories of what Peter calls the variegated grace of God, which is the astonishingly complex grace of God. They are really the same grace of God. It does not say God is the God of all graces. It says God is the God of all grace. in First Peter 510. I'm fanning out too soon, though. So they're really justifying and sanctifying is one grace. The effect of God's grace on sinners is both rectifying, setting right, and sanctifying, setting apart. His grace both sets right and sets apart for his own use. Second, very general principle God's justifying grace through the Christ event is God's sanctifying grace through the mission of the spirit in conjunction with the mission of the son as an extension of the mission of the son remember the DMs divine missions one and two. First is the divine mission of the Son. The second, the divine mission of the Holy Spirit. These are, in one sense, one operation, one expedition of God into this evil age. So second principle, again, I'll reiterate it. These will also be in print. And I'm not giving scriptural different documentation at first. When these are fanned out, I will rock you with the documentation. Second principle again God's justifying grace through the Christ event that includes his incarnation through his resurrection with the heart being the crucifixion. God's justifying grace through the Christ event is God's sanctifying grace through the mission of the spirit in conjunction with the mission of the son and as an extension of the mission of the son. Third principle. God's justifying, sanctifying grace is God's elevating grace. Again, these various categories of grace can be conceptually viewed theologically. And we'll see it as separate categories, but they are really one grace, really one grace. Third principle, then God's justifying, sanctifying grace is God's elevating grace, lifting human beings from one horizon to the next. And that's what we've enjoyed as a congregation. One horizon to the next one horizon in which you see and experience little higher horizon. We are elevated through humility to see another wider, broader, deeper horizon. The grace of God is elevating, elevates us from one horizon to the next. It's a horizon elevating grace. I'm already expanding a little bit, but God's justifying, sanctifying grace is God's elevating grace. Lifting human beings from one horizon to another by means of divinely given insights. And by God willing and doing in them. The fourth principle, very general. God's justifying, sanctifying, and elevating grace is universal. That will take some fanning out. Fifth, very general principle. How'd you get woke up with these? These are great, great way to wake up. Fifth principle, the activity of the triune God. In our note for note takers, I'm giving you a little bit of hint for note takers. TTG, the triune God. Augustine was asked to define person. What's a person? What is a person? And he said, that of which there are three in the being we call God. That which there are three of in the being we call God. So you don't think of person. First, as a human person, you think of person, not first, as an angelic person. Think of person first as a divine person. A person is that of which there are three in the divine singular being we call God. One in being in essence, three in persons. So we're going to have divine persons. We're going to have divine processions. We're going to have divine relations and we're going to show just exactly what it means to be imitators of God and to be conformed into the image of God which is Christ and to be a mimesis of Christ the fifth principle then the activity of the triune god the trinity in history is entirely and exclusively salvific. Some vocabulary words, salvific meaning saving. It's also a word salutary, which means beneficial, benevolent, saving, positive, help, helping, redeeming, salvific or salutary. So when you see these things, you'll understand what I'm saying. The activity of the triune God or the Trinity, if you want to call it that way, the divine Trinity in history is entirely and exclusively salvific. Now that's even given the fact that God initiates and completes certain historical judgments. That there is no eternal hell does not mean that there's never historical judgments for a salutary reason. And even that there are Disciplinary actions on human beings and believers for salutary reasons. That their spirit would be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. Saved from what? Saved from discipline in the last judgment. The fifth principle then. The activity of the triune God in history is entirely and exclusively salvific. And this salutary activity of the divine trinity in history is universal and redemptive of history itself. Redemptive of history itself. All of time. In other words, God doesn't tell us to do something he doesn't do. Redeem the time. How do we do it? Well, first, let's figure out how God does it. Six. The activity, some of these are a little long principles. We might call them a thesis. Thesis. And plural, that's theses. Thesis. Theses. Thesis. The book I'm reading now by Robert M. Duran has 90 of them in 200 pages. So I'm learning how to do, build doctrine in the form of thesis after thesis. So the sixth, we'll call it a thesis, or I'll call it a very general principle. The activity of the triune God in history is instauration by name. Instauration. I'll spell it for you. I-N-S-T-A-U-R-A-T-I-O-N root word here comes into the latin the latin word actually is found in ephesians one ten. instaurare omnia in christo the restoration of everything in christ and this s t a u s t a u root comes To the Greek as S-T-A-U-R-O-S, which is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the sixth principle is central. The activity of the triune God in history is instauration. That is to say that the divine justification, sanctification, and elevation of the human race and all of creation, for that matter, in all of time, into divine life, elevation of all humanity and all of creation into divine life, partakers of the divine nature, occurs by none other than the wise, the powerful, the good, the loving, the just, the merciful the mysterious law of the cross. Seventh principle. The way of the cross is the way that Jesus took. When he spoke in the so-called Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't just commanding his disciples how to act and move and live and think and intend and do and practice and deliberate and act in this world where a dominant culture prevails that is influenced by evil. He was rather showing the way that he was going the way of the cross. And so Matthew five ends with be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that perfection is a perfection of love. He was perfect because of love that extended not just for the lovely, but for the godless and the enemies of God. So with that in mind, see, I'm already fanning out. I just can't help it. The activity of the triune God in history is in the That is to say that the divine justifying grace, sanctifying grace and elevating grace, which elevates the human race and all of creation, all of time into divine life occurs by none other than the wise, the powerful, the good, the loving, the just, the merciful, the mysterious law of the cross. Seventh. The way of the cross, that's where I'm taking it now, is the way that Jesus took. And that we who follow him take. It is the way that we who follow him take. As we are not overcome by evil, but overcome evil by the very goodness that transforms evil into a supreme good. That supreme good ultimately being a community of love among divine and human persons. That's a tough one, but it needs to be fanned out. Let me say it again. This is too central also. Six and seven so far aren't the same old sixes and sevens. These are central. The way of the cross is the way that Jesus took And that we who follow him also take. As we are not overcome by evil. But overcome evil by the goodness that transforms evil into a supreme good. Namely into a community of love among divine and human persons. The supreme good. Is not the same as. Goodness by reason of essence. Only God is good by reason of essence. The supreme good, though, is a mutual fellowship, a fellowship of both divine and human persons. That's the supreme good. Paul, who was evil, for example, and whose motives were evil, and whose intentionality was murder, was brought into such a place that he said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. His fellowship with a human person and a divine and human person. The evil Paul was transformed into, or the evil Saul transformed into the supreme good, into fellowship with God's divine son, which brings us into fellowship with the father, the son, and the spirit. All of this is going to be fanned out just in case you're wondering what the distillation of Romans is. And just in case you're wondering what doing and living theology is. Eighth, the divine missions of which we have been learning, and that's for many years, as said Lesti Phalanx, the divine missions of which we have been learning are universal missions. Now, just off the top of my head, going back to the Johannine writings, God sent his son not to condemn the world but to save the world through him that the world may be saved through him or the world would be saved. In other words, the objective of the mission is unstoppable. It's determined by God and resolved. It isn't wished for for God knows nothing of wishful thinking. God has hope but his hope is is an expectation already realized in him and fully realized in history. Because God inhabits already the future that he planned for us and he's already there waiting for us. The divine missions of which we have been learning are universal missions. The Holy Spirit will come and he will convince the world that's the entirety of all rational creatures. Of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Because I go to my Father. The mission of the Spirit, John 16, 7 through 11. The mission of the Son are universal missions. And they have, we could add, even now, universal success. The ninth very general principle. The gift of God's love. Spoken specifically of in Romans 5.5. 5, perhaps centrally in Romans 5.5. 5, is a universal gift. Not only available. To all of humanity. But fully acceptable. By all of humanity. And it will be. Accepted by all of humanity when God wills, by His justifying, sanctifying, elevating universal grace, in which He lifts up the human race and all of creation into a participation in the divine life. You know the upshot of that, of course. Every knee bows, every tongue acknowledges that Yahweh is Yeshua. Yahweh who saves is Jesus, our Savior. The tenth very general principle, the gospel of God about his son, also known as the word of the cross, most notably First Corinthians one eighteen reveals the saving action of God in Christ and by Christ's faithfulness. The gospel of God about his son, also known as the word of the cross, reveals the saving action of God in Christ and by Christ's faithfulness and communicates the saving power of God in Christ and in the spirit. That same gospel communicates the saving power of God in Christ and in the Spirit. The eleventh principle this saving power, or the gospel is the power of God for salvation, this saving power is experienced as God's power for salvation which is justification, rectification, sanctification, and elevation into divine life. I'll say that again. This saving power is experienced as God's power for salvation, justification, sanctification, and elevation into divine life in those whom the word and the spirit evoke faith, ignite faith, kindle faith. Faith. And may be experienced even now in the clashing juncture of the ages, in the arena of contention, as we call it. Twelfth, very general principle. Because God's activity in history is entirely and exclusively salutary, saving, salvific. Redemptive. And the effect of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, or instauration, the effect of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, instauration. Hint Your justification is your instauration. You were crucified with Christ. And that means justified with Christ, sanctified with Christ. For their sake, I sanctify myself. He said, elevated with Christ into heavenly places and seated with Him together. You've been in So because God's activity in history is entirely and exclusively salutary and the effect of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is universal, all of humanity will come to the unity of the faith, the unity that is of faith, not just believing that Jesus is the Christ, but faith being a knowledge born of God's love, which discerns. The totality of God's redemptive purpose because God's activity in history is entirely and exclusively salutary or saving and the effect of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ or instauration is universal all of humanity will come to the unity of the faith and be brought to the measure of the stature of the development of true humanity That is exemplified in the man, Christ Jesus. There's a lot to that. The pinpoint verse for that is Ephesians 4.13. Until we all come in the unity of the faith, in the unity in which we all have faith born of love, the knowledge of God born of love, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, means... That all of humanity in all of its times, even humanity that other human beings in their human pride of life consider to be somehow deformed or arrested in their development or less intelligent, less fit, less lovely, less pretty, all humanity in all of its times and God will even heap more beauty on those who are considered to be ugly by society. He heaps more grace on the unseemly parts. All humanity in all of its times, no matter how distorted by environmental handicaps, by previous abuses, by the original sin of Adam handed down to the human race, by the distortions that have occurred in the developments of history no matter how distorted as oppressors and evildoers, no matter how distorted as those oppressed who have had evil done to them, all will be brought to the measure of a stature of the development of true humanity that is exemplified in the only worthy one, the man, Christ Jesus. So we will be taking in quite a lot of excerpts of Ephesians in our next increment. So let me just give you a hint about how to fan these out. I already have, but with just a few more moments of this and a few more examples, let's go back to the point one justifying grace is sanctifying grace. Now I'm just giving you an idea what it means to fan these out, a folded flag, unfurled the flag unfurled becomes what song of Solomon calls a banner over us a banner over the banqueting table the messianic banqueting table and the banner over us is love is God who is love so this is fanning out these principles justifying grace is sanctifying grace Paul in his dialectic with an opponent who held an irreconcilably contradictory gospel to his, said to him that my associates and I in Romans 3.8 are slanderously reported as saying, go out and do evil that good may come. Now, a false distinction, even in the Reformation era, says that we're justified but we remain sinful and so it doesn't really matter, this and that doesn't matter. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says justifying grace, which he speaks of all through Romans 5, therefore being justified by faithfulness, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We have peace with God, which means we have a participation with God's life and livingness. So Romans 6.1, how can we that have died to sin live any longer in it? The justifying grace of Romans 5 is the sanctifying grace of Romans 6. And so far from being a suggestion, go out and do evil, it doesn't matter, good will come anyways. Justifying grace, being identified as sanctifying grace, takes away that accusation, pulls it down, steps on it, kicks it out forever. It puts it in a non-existent place called hell, where it no longer exists. And again, though these are considered categories of the variegated grace of God, and that's, the word in the Greek is poikilos, Poikilos. And poikilos means various kinds, variegated. But then there's polypoikilos, which means like God's wisdom in Ephesians 3.10. It's one wisdom, but there's so many categories and directions of it that it looks like a million kinds of wisdoms. It's an incredibly complex wisdom of God. So much so that angels study it. Principalities and powers in the angelic academy study this wisdom of God. This wisdom of God is a mysterious kind of wisdom because it's all wrapped up in the law of the cross. Where for some reason in God's ultimate wisdom, he chose a world in which evil is permitted, though not willed by him. Because... In his wisdom, he knew that for the objects of his love, a good that would come out of evil or be evil transformed into good would be a far greater good to participate in than merely created good. So, as First Peter 4.10 says, the he calls it the variegated grace of God and then in 1 Peter 5.10 he calls God the God of all grace who after you suffer a while perfects you why after we suffer a while because God considered a world in which evil exists by his permission would result in a greater good than a world in which evil would not be permitted and so there is suffering and God allows it And God gifts us with it. And so he perfects us through suffering, even as he perfected his son through suffering. In Hebrews 2.10, in which he became obedient even to the extent of death, even death by crucifixion, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. And that doesn't just mean a few knees. Or even a million or a billion knees. That means every knee of every person with a knee that was ever born in all the human race in all of time. Even Pope John II knew that in Vatican II. He said God has redeemed everyone, whether they're conscious of it or not. Now, why they didn't teach that in the churches, well, I do know why they don't teach it. For one thing, you wouldn't be damned if you didn't go to mass. If you knew that. Incidentally, here's a shocker. I always like to throw one shocker in there. God can elevate a non-believer into the experience of divine livingness and divine life, and they don't even know what hit them. Anyways, let's throw that in. So, doesn't mean that if there are variegated wisdom, it doesn't mean God has lots of wisdoms. It means he has one wisdom with a lot of different directions and a lot of different categories of it in time. God is the God of all grace, singular grace. He doesn't have many kinds of graces. And so when we talk about, as theologians, justifying grace and sanctifying grace and elevating grace and cooperative grace and operative grace and actual grace... And growing grace and all the graces, we're talking about one grace. So justifying grace is sanctifying grace, is the elevating grace that lifts humanity up head first. He's the lifter of our head, our mind, our thinking, our intentionality first. And then our bodies come in resurrection. He lifts up humanity into a participation with divine livingness, second Peter 1: four, consider how great and precious the promises of God are by which we become partakers of the divine nature, nature, participants in divine living, divine life, divine peace, divine stillness, divine love. And so they're really the same grace of God, justifying. And sanctifying therefore the word justify doesn't have just the word legally right while you're still screwed up. In fact, the problem with the human race was worse than being under sin. It was being dead in sins. How do you rectify a person's situation if their situation is death? You make them alive. And so justifying grace is the grace that makes the dead alive. And so if you've died and then been made alive, how can you continue any longer in the sin that makes you dead? That's how we fan out. The first one, justifying grace is found in Romans three twenty four. After 323 all sin and keep coming short of the glory of God being justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So in point two or the very general principle number two, God's justifying grace through the Christ event. Where's the documentation for that justified by grace through the redemption That is in Christ. That's the Christ event. The son of God became human. In order to communicate. In an orderly way. The friendship of God. To his enemies. That's why. Matthew 5. Is. The way of the cross. That Jesus takes. Or took. You've heard that it's been said. Jesus said. That you should. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you that you should love your enemies. Who did that? He did that. That's the way of the cross. While we were still his enemies. God reconciled us to himself in Christ. Blessed is the man said David. Speaking as a man as an individual to whom god will not account sin he won't hold it against him but that which is true of each is also true of all for god was in christ during the christ event his incarnation his life of perfect meritorious obedience climaxing in the obedience to the death of the cross where to whom was he being obedient He was being obedient to the Father. And to what intent of the Father was the Son being obedient? The Father's intent to save all humankind. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all people saved and will have all to come to the knowledge of the truth. John Paul II was correct, both before and after he was shot. And he expressed forgiveness for the man that shot him because in that event, at least, Pope John Paul II chose the way of the cross, overcoming evil by the greater good of forgiveness. And showing that to the world of Catholics, at least, and showed it to me, too. He was right to say that everyone has been redeemed in the Christ event, whether they're conscious of it or not. My question is if that's an authoritative pronouncement of a pope, why didn't you make the priests all teach that? Send out an encyclical. Teach this. Well, the effect of not teaching that has been demonstrated in our recent history. The effect of not teaching that has been demonstrated in our recent history. The great study of Nehemiah they built a temple when they came back in restoration in 516 5, B.C. But you know, what was a greater event than the building of the temple was the translation of the scriptures into a form in which they could understand it, which created a lot of little walking temples, Joe. Temples of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we are. As we participate in divine life, a lot of temples walking around. How about this one? We'll jump down to the divine missions of which we have been learning. They are universal missions. The spirit, the Holy Spirit, is said by prophecy in Joel 2.28. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The mission of the spirit, therefore, is universal. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That little term, all flesh, is found in Psalm 143.2. I'm just winging it now. 143.2 where it says, all flesh will not be justified in your sight, God. That Paul's interpreted as no one living can be justified in your sight. That's where instauration comes in. If we can't be justified while we're alive, then instauration means we were crucified with the righteous one. And therefore, in our co-crucifixion with him, we were justified. The mission of the Holy Spirit is universal. Because when the Spirit is poured out on someone, as it was poured out on the many in Israel who became prophets, they began to prophesy. The effect of pouring out the spirit on someone is salutary, beneficial, saving. It instigates faith. He is called the spirit of faith. 2 Corinthians 4.13. So if the spirit is poured out and generates faith on those in whom it's poured out, then if he's poured out on all flesh, he generates faith in all of humanity. The mission of the Spirit, connected intricately and without the possibility of a disattachment to the mission of the Son, is universal. The mission of the Son is obviously universal. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son. That's the second person of the triune God. What is a person if not that? of which there are three in a being called God. God begot the son and the son was begotten in an eternal internal act within the Trinity so that the son always was. There never was a time when God the son did not exist. He was not preceded by the father, nor does the father have priority over the son. In fact, the whole purpose of being brought into A fellowship with divine and human persons is that we as human persons submit to one another in the fear of Christ or in the reverential awe of Christ. We're going to show you that in Ephesians 5.21, that doesn't mean the congregation submitting to a pastor. That means everybody, including the pastor who's just another guy in this fellowship, submits to one another in the reverential awe of of Christ, because that's what happens in the triune God. It isn't the Son and the Spirit kneeling to the Father or the Spirit kneeling to the Father and the Son. It is an ineffable, indescribably astonishing parallel, unparalleled love between three co equal persons. And we have been called into the fellowship of these divine persons, that they may be one Father even as we are one and the unifying of the father, the son, and the spirit with all humankind is the spirit whose mission is universal. The son's mission is universal. God loved the world so much that he gave his only eternally begotten son so that whoever believes in him, that is whoever has faith evoked in them by the mission of the spirit, will not only not perish, that is not only not continue in the Adamic ontology in this life, but experience the life of the coming age even now. Faith is the knowledge of God's love in which we begin to experience the life of the coming age rather than continue perishing. You say... Perishing, what do you mean by perishing? Well, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the law of the cross, the word of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Perishing is only a temporal condition of people in mortal bodies because it's simply continuity in the Adamic ontology in the lust of the flesh and the domination by sin and in the sense of self-condemnation and a lot of other things add the law to it and all you do is intensify it add christian messages to it in which demands are made on the flesh and you just add to the misery christianity's done more to hurt the gospel than any other thing including buddhism islam atheism militant type atheism and every other thing The most damaging effect on the gospel of the grace of God has come within the realm of a thing called Christendom. And you can tell that. By people's choices to be anything but Christianity. Because of the Christianity they have seen. Because of their behaviors and because of their misrepresentations of this gospel of grace, 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 the way of truth is being evil spoken of and the messengers are being slanderously reported to be out of the sync with God. These are just some ways which we can develop this. John 3 17 goes into this, and we started off with this in the Johannine Epistle of John, or the the Gospel of John. For God did not send his Son to condemn the world. The problem in the world was already that they were under condemnation and sin, but to save the world. How do you rectify a situation called death? By bringing life. We were dead in sins, God has made us alive in Christ which is why Romans 5.18, which I regard to be the central, important theological verse, life-giving justification to all of humanity. Now, we could fan the rest of these out, and I think, well, I could say that this morning at 5.30 and following, the Holy Spirit gave to my human spirit the makings of a very long series to be developed over the course of months. I can just see that now because I'm starting to fan it out. And I'm going, well, that can go there and that can go there and that can go there and that can go there. But you know what instead what we're going to do right now? End it. See some of you Wednesday.